Did you know that eating flavanol-rich dark chocolate may be a promising tool for managing cognitive decline? Studies from Columbia and other research centers show the real cognitive benefits of daily cocoa flavanol consumption. Benefits like improvements in executive cognitive function, processing speed, working memory, and mood were observed in studies where participants consumed 500 to 900 milligrams of cocoa flavanols daily. I searched high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Flava Naturals performance dark chocolate bars and cocoa powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to help promote healthy brain function. I use it every day. To order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. There, you can read about the science behind cocoa flavanols and get great recipes too. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today's focus is on the microbiome. We're talking to one of the world's experts on that subject. Uh, and he is uh, figures prominently in a new documentary, The Invisible Extinction, which chronicles his pioneering work uh, along with his wife, Maria Gloria Dominguez-Bello, uh, who... Uh, conducted a lot of research in laboratories across the United States and around the world, but also ventured to parts unknown, parts of the world where people's microbiomes are still relatively intact and gained a lot of insights from that. Uh, it's a very, very entertaining documentary. I hope you watch it. It's called The Invisible Extinction. Well, in light of the invisible distinction, uh, I'm sorry, the invisible, there's a distinction between extinction and distinction, the invisible extinction. Uh, Dr. Blazer is uh, part of a very, very fascinating new initiative. It's entitled The Microbiota Vault. It kind of sounds like the Arctic uh, Svalbard seed vault. You know, we're worried about lack of diversity in crops. So we've banked some of the seeds in this <laughs> frozen wasteland in the Arctic uh, against the possibility that they might go extinct. But we're going to do the same thing with uh, the flora that inhabit our intestinal tracts. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I don't know, almost 10 years ago, uh, my wife, uh, Maria Gloria Dominguez, was reading about the seed vault uh, in Svalbard where they are uh, storing the seeds of humankind. So there's some calamity. Uh, they can get the seeds back and, you know, restart agriculture. Uh, and uh, she thought, well, this is a very good model for what we should do about the microbiota. So she got together a group of scientists from around the world. Uh, I, I've helped her, but it's really it's really her project. She's the president of the Microbiota Vault Inc. It's a nonprofit. It's a, a public charity in the United States, a 501c3 corporation. People can make donations to the Microbiota Vault. It's supported by a number of different foundations at present. There's a scientific advisory board with very notable scientists, including <clears throat> a couple of uh, Nobel laureates who've taken on the clarion call. And the idea of the vault is just as you said. Uh, we want to archive uh, and store 
the microbial diversity of the world, the human microbial diversity before it's gone. Uh, you know, once it goes extinct, uh, it's gone. So we want to we want to save it so that uh, at some point we'll be able to give it back to people uh, who need it. This is a project, you know, for hundreds of years into the future. So they've already demonstrated that uh, uh, what are called fecal transplants can be beneficial uh, for a certain condition, uh, Clostridium difficile, uh, diarrheal uh, infections, which are now no longer responsive to many powerful antibiotics. And, and it seems that they actually are a fix for people who are literally wasting away from debilitating diarrhea due to C. difficile. Uh, and in fact, I think they've just authorized a, that as a medication so that it won't be like a, a rare esoteric application. They're kind of cleaned it up and put it in a poop pill of sorts uh, that can be administered to people with that condition. Um, is is that something that's being contemplated for for other medical conditions, or maybe, you know, perhaps even you know, the sounds far fetched, but as, as potentially as a treatment for obesity or metabolic syndrome or uh, neurological diseases? You know, an anti Parkinson's poop pill. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> this is a lot to swallow. So I'll, right. uh, I'll take it. I'll take thank it you for the thank you for the, the thank you for the pun. <laughs> right. You know. You know. 20 years ago, if someone said to you, you know, we can cure disease by giving people poop, uh, you would have thought, you know, this person is insane, you know, or, or telling a, a practical joke. But as you point out, there is a, a condition, there's an infection uh, called, uh, called C. diff infection. That's the short name for it. It's a very severe infection of the intestine. And it, it has been shown that if you give people normal poop, either through their mouth or through their rectum, it doesn't much matter, uh, you can restore their microbiome and restore their health. And, you know, this, this is a, a kind of a proof of principle. It shows that uh, normalizing the microbiome uh, can restore health. So, uh, and that, as you point out, is, is now an accepted practice and it's getting more and more refined, but that's the, that's the essential uh, way it's done. And because of that success, medical scientists all over the world are asking, well, can they give a fecal transplant for other conditions? So now if you go to the website called clinicaltrials.gov, this is, this is a site where if you're going to do a clinical trial, you have to register with the U.S. government so that uh, things can be a, a, above board. Uh, there are more than 300 clinical trials listed right now uh, for different kinds of conditions. This is using fecal transplant to treat obesity or uh, adult onset diabetes or juvenile onset diabetes or autism or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease, and the list goes on. It's a huge list, and people are trying to see whether this concept would be beneficial or not. And I would say that right now, there, there is no condition for which it is as beneficial as it is for C. diff infection. But the hope is to find that there'll be some diseases that will be amenable to that, or perhaps some subgroup of people with a disease, you know, maybe 50% of the people or some, some proportion where readjusting the microbiome can bring them back to health. This is 
this is an experimental procedure now, uh, but experiments are being done all over the world. And short of uh, making it sort of a generalized poop pill, which which may dep- depend on the health of the donor, because it's got to be a little bit hit or miss. Uh, there has to be uh, a donor who's free of infectious diseases, who has a healthy, diverse microbiome. We don't even quite know what that constitute these days. Uh, you have to be extraordinarily careful before attempting that. It's kind of a little bit like hitting a Swiss watch with a hammer. It may make, make it work better or it may make it not work. Well, you know, we're now more than 100 years into the concept of blood transfusions. You know, that, that you know, in the 19th century, they, they weren't doing blood transfusions. And, and now this is, this is an accepted part of medicine. But you wouldn't just give anyone any unit of blood. Now we know that we have to, uh, to type the donor. We have to type the recipient. And it only works when you have a matched type. It's possible that this something similar will be true for fecal transplants. Wow, that's an exciting prospect. But short of that, because this is really in the experimental stage, and it's only generally authorized for narrow indications, such as C. difficile, debilitating conditions, or under, you know, experimental protocols. Uh, what, what are some practical measures that people can take to optimize uh, their microbiome. Let, let's start with uh, uh, C-sections. For some women, C-sections are a must. Uh, young, young women in my family, uh, you know, sometimes starting late in life, they've had high-risk pregnancies. And as much as they've tried to have natural birth, they've required C-sections. So is, is there a workaround? Is there a way to reverse uh, the deficits that may occur in, in a C-section? Yeah, I think so. Uh, C-sections are, are, are fabulous operations, uh, uh, you know, for the, for the right woman. Uh, um, you know, if you look at some of the most advanced countries in the world, the Netherlands, Sweden, Norway, their C-section rate is about 10 or 12%. Hmm. Our, our C-section rate in the United States is 32%. And there are countries like Ecuador and Iran uh, where the, the C-section rate is more than 50%. Hmm. In in Rome, the C-section rate is more than 80%. In Rio de Janeiro, it's more than 80%. It's it's more than 50% in Shanghai. It sounds like so a medical vogue, is, you know, something like uh, well, it, exactly. it has a hallmark of modernization that maybe some developing it, it, countries it, are embracing, just as we, you know, in the 1950s when I was a kid, uh, they thought that uh, formula was uh, a great innovation and it could free mothers from the, the onerous burden of breastfeeding. Yeah, exactly. So there are fads in medicine. And this particular fad uh, is uh, on on its surface seems to make sense. Uh, doctors like it. They don't have to get up in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, pregnant women like it. They, there's less pain. Uh, they can schedule things. Uh, uh, hospitals like it. You don't have to have, be on call 24-7. Uh, insurance companies like it. Everybody likes it. It's good for everybody except for the baby. And so I think we have to dial back C-sections to understand which are the ones that are medically necessary. And for those, they should definitely be done. But uh, I don't, it's, you know, if they can, if they're only doing it in 10 or 12% of pregnant women in Sweden or Holland, uh, I don't think that we need to do as many as we're doing. So we have to, we, we have to, when I was growing up, uh, I learned a proverb, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. 
And in terms of the microbiome, I think this is really important advice. We need to stop damaging the microbiome. Uh, that'll be much easier than trying to restore it. Uh, there's a procedure that is uh, sometimes used in C-sections where uh, literally some, some vaginal secretions are siphoned off and then uh, introduced into the baby's mouth to populate the baby with the vaginal flora that ordinarily they would uh, imbibe in, through the birth passage. Is that something that has shown promise? Absolutely. And uh, that, that has also been called uh, vaginal seeding. Mm -hmm. And that technique was developed by my wife, by Maria wow. Gloria Dominguez. And that, that's why she's such a good subject for the, for the film, because she's done the pioneering work on C-section as well as the work out in the Amazon. So it's a really, she's, uh, I, I'm, I'm lucky to be married to her and I'm very proud of all the things she's doing because she's making a difference all over the world. Uh, women who have to have C-sections are, are trying to give the, the, their baby a dose of what they have missed by not going through the birth canal. Yeah, so, and, they, and, and, and Gloria has shown in, in studies that have been published in major journals. Exactly what I was going to ask you. Is, are there outcome studies on that that show that it makes a difference? Well, there are two kinds of uh, studies. The first study, the short-term study, shows that you can at least get a partial restoration. You can bring their, their microbiota back so that it, it much more resembles kids who are born naturally. The, the more important and longer-term study is, do these kids have a lower rate of disease? Because even before the microbiome was discovered, it was clear that babies born by C-section had higher rates of juvenile diabetes. They had higher rates of obesity. Uh, and now we, we know the reason. It's because their microbiome has been uh, distorted. So studies need to be done, but those are studies that will take years to accomplish because they don't, these diseases don't occur overnight. But the presumption uh, is that when such studies are done, they will show that uh, kids at C-section are at increased risk because their microbiome is abnormal and that restoring the microbiome will diminish their risk. And of course, there's breastfeeding. We want to encourage that to the extent possible. Yeah. Uh, what about... You know, there was an interest, interesting... There was a, a very recent paper that showed, as expected, that when you give kids, you know, strong doses of antibiotics, it's very disruptive of their microbiome. But that study also showed that those kids who were breastfed had much faster and better recovery from the antibiotic effects than kids who got formula. I, so I that's, imagine that, it, that preemies are at a special risk because they're in a, you know, a, a pediatric ICU. Sometimes it's difficult to administer colostrum or breast milk to them. Uh, and uh, often they're given antibiotics because they're at high risk uh, you know, because of prematurity. Uh, those kids may be especially at risk of microbiome depletion, right? They are. You know, I'm mostly concerned uh, about kind of normal kids, mm -hmm. the full-term kids. Uh, th these are the millions and tens of millions of kids born every year. The, the issue of, of premature kids, this, these are very serious medical problems. That's much more complex. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't have a particular opinion uh, uh, about what is best uh, for those kids. Uh, that, that's, again, a very serious problem. I, I'm, I'm concerned about the kind of bread and butter 
uh, normal delivery kids. What about, uh, you know, corrective measures? You know, say you're further along in life, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, an older child uh, or, you know, uh, older adult. Uh, what about measures like uh, taking probiotics or eating fermented foods? Can those be helpful? Yeah, well, I'm going to first, before we get to that, I'm going to yeah. go back to the idea of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, I'm very interested in antibiotics. I'm a, uh, my specialty is infectious diseases. That's It's all about the use of antibiotics. And, and what I've learned in recent years <clears throat> is there's tremendous variation in how doctors use antibiotics. You, you can have doctors in the same practice, and one is giving antibiotics to 95% of the people, and another doctor is giving it to 40% of the people. And there's no obvious medical reason for this. So I think one of the things is, is that we have to remove some of the variation in how doctors are using antibiotics and how patients are asking their doctors for antibiotics. Many patients feel deprived if the doctor isn't going to prescribe them an antibiotic uh, because they're just not that sick. It's because uh, patients and doctors don't really understand all the costs of taking antibiotics. They just see the benefits. Uh, uh, but, you know, for life-threatening infection, nothing's better than an antibiotic. But most antibiotics are actually used for people with very mild infections. And for those infections, it's not clear to me whether the benefit exceeds the risk exceeds the cost the risk of developing a variety of different diseases so we have to we have to kind of change our philosophy again there's tremendous variation in europe there's a north south gradient in northern parts of europe they're using much less antibiotics in southern part of europe in the united states there's a huge difference between the southern united states where antibiotics are, are widely used and the western united states Basically, in, in the South, they're using antibiotics about twice as much per capita per year as, as in, in the West. And there is no real difference in the rate of serious bacterial infections. This reflects the practice of medicine, the culture of medicine. And so we, we need to examine that and, and try to get, try to diminish use. That I, I would say, you know, the number one objectives are, are, are still prevention to, to stop the, the damage uh, that C-sections and antibiotics and the lack of formula feeding that, that uh, all of these are doing. One medical vogue that has uh, increased the use of antibiotics uh, uh, astronomically is the discovery of a bacteria that causes ulcers. And I know that you're an expert on this bacterium, which is called Helicobacter pylori. And in fact, uh, from your bio, I understand that initially when you heard uh, Dr. Barry Marshall talk about how ulcers may be caused by a bacteria, you were intensely skeptical. But then uh, with uh, more work on this subject, uh, you became a believer. Uh, but you've also discovered a potentially protective role <coughs> of H. pylori. And maybe uh, we're going overboard in our effort to prevent ulcers and gastric cancer and all the supposed consequences of this bad, supposedly bad bug. Yeah, I mean, that's that that's a complicated story. Um, as 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 you said, uh, Dr. Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, they discovered H. pylori and they showed that it was uh, related to ulcers. And in fact, that work uh, won them the Nobel Prize. 
And, and our work showed that H. pylori was a really important cause of stomach cancer. And I've, I've gotten awards from the National Ca uh, uh, American Cancer Society, the National Cancer Institute, for that work. So I, I, I was definitely a believer, as it were. And I still believe that. But, uh, but most people who have H. pylori don't get ulcers, and they don't get stomach cancer. H. pylori is one of those disappearing bacteria. In fact, that's where I began to have the idea that we were losing bacteria because it's clear that this organism, which has been present in humans since time immemorial, is going away. And as it's going away, ulcers are going away and stomach cancer is going away. But then new diseases are, are, are coming to us. One of those diseases is called reflux esophagitis or, or GERD. Uh, GERD was really uh, discovered in the 20th century, and probably everybody knows people who have GERD or reflux. It, it's gotten extremely common, and it's pretty clear that one of the reasons it's so common is because people don't have H. pylori. So uh, that that's that, that's one point. So the, the H. pylori story uh, is more nuanced. H. pylori is bad for us. It has it has cost us, but it clearly has benefit to us as well. And medical science has to figure out, uh, you know, how we're going to deal with H. pylori. And so, take a more um, balanced approach and and not uh, you know reflexly right. eradicate and, it simply upon finding it present. Right. We and others have also linked having H. pylori to protection against asthma. And as you know, asthma is one of those diseases that has risen dramatically in recent decades, just when H. pylori was falling. And in, in epidemiologic studies, in experimental studies, we've shown that H. pylori protects against asthma. So the H. pylori story is, is quite nuanced. And although right now most doctors in the world are trying to get rid of it from everyone, I right. think that's a mistake. Yeah, we're, we're conducting a virtual jihad against uh, H. pylori. Uh, coming back to the subject of uh, probiotics and fermented foods, do you believe that they have a role in restoring the microbiome and perhaps people who have, have depleted or damaged microbiomes? Uh, I think that probiotics are really going to be extremely important in medicine in the future. Right now, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different probiotic products on the shelf. You go to the pharmacy or the uh, supermarket or the health food store, you will just see shelf after shelf of products called probiotics. What I can tell you is that they're generally safe. There's tremendous variation in them. They have one strain, they have multiple strains. Some, some of them are alive, some are the, them dead. But the most important point is that they have almost completely not been tested. We don't really know what they do. Many people take them as an article of faith, but they haven't been tested. So your guess is as good as mine. We need to have science about probiotics to figure out which ones work for which conditions, for which people. Right now, uh, it's mostly an exercise in wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. Or in, uh, you know, sort of a, a scattershot approach where it, it's not targeted to specific uh, need, a specific deficit in the, uh, in the, um, microbiome uh it's even yeah, the field is the field is mostly driven by marketing right. there are some reputable country companies that are doing work to actually try and figure out which which probiotics work and which ones don't but by and large uh, it's not being studied 
Now, there's also a proliferation of uh, stool tests, tests that will tell you, uh, do you have an optimal microbiome? But from what I've learned, uh, even the sophisticated methods that we now have, uh, you know, high throughput technology, you know, with uh, the DNA and RNA signature of these microorganisms, that there's still some imprecision about finding out exactly what's there and what's not there. Yeah, I am. Um uh, I think one again one day uh, analysis of uh, of our poop is going to be really useful. Just like now, you w- you wouldn't have a clinical trial if the investigators didn't get blood tests so they could see what was going on. I think they're going to get poop tests also because the poop is very informative. There's a lot of information there if you know what it means. But right now we hardly know what it means, and most of these poop tests are not. Are, are not worth the price of admission. I don't know. I'm an expert, and I don't know how to interpret them. Mm-hmm. So, that's a there, frank there admission. People who yeah. are people, there are people who are happy to sell you a poop test, but um, I'd save your money. Okay, uh, and fermented foods, you know, something uh, traditional in the in the human diet, you know, before refrigeration, they were very popular, and and some studies have suggested that even in the face of COVID, that countries that rely more on uh, fermented foods were relatively spared the devastation of COVID. Now, correlation is not necessarily causation, but is there something to it that fermented foods may restore the microbiome and have a good impact on immunity? You know, I love fermented foods. I've been eating yogurt for 50 years, so um, it's delicious. But fermentation was designed to preserve shelf life for food so that it wouldn't spoil. That That's what fermented foods are all about. Do they have health benefits? I'm not sure. I, I, I don't really know. The one thing I do know is that if, if there's any food that's good for the microbiome, it's fiber. That yep. the undigestible fiber that's in vegetables, for example. Uh, Basically, we can't eat enough fiber. Our ancestors ate five times as much fiber as as we're eating. And that's very good for the bacteria in our intestine. So in my list of food additives that are good for us, number one on the list is fiber, number two on the list is fiber, and number three is fiber. Indeed. And and then there's the dietary polyphenols, the colorful chemicals that are present in uh, fruits and vegetables and even in things like uh, coffee, tea, wine, uh, cocoa. And it, I, I originally thought, I think a lot of people uh, misunderstood them, that, you know, there were chemicals in them that were absorbed through the intestine and then they would go through the bloodstream and then they would hit all the organs. They would go to the brain and, you know, if you're eating blueberries, your brain would turn purple and that would protect your brain. But there's actually some research, a lot of research now that suggests that their principal action is in the microbiome, that they act as a prebiotic or they encourage the growth of beneficial bacteria. Has that been your finding? Well, they are uh, polyphenols are antibacterial. You know, okay. plants don't want to get eaten by bacteria either, so they they protect their fruits uh, by having antibacterial substances. And you know, humans have been eating uh, plants and veg- uh, fruits and vegetables uh, since time immemorial. Um, you know, without ill effects um, and probably beneficial effects. The the science about polyphenols is is emerging. And, uh, you know, in general, the, the idea is to eat as natural a diet as possible. Indeed. All right. Well, 
great stuff. You know, really important work. And, uh, you know, I'm really thrilled uh, to have the opportunity to talk to a pioneer like yourself and somebody who is uh, very proactive about an important issue for, you know, our survival as a species, which is to protect and preserve our micro microbial heritage, uh, something that really is essential for our uh, biological well-being. And, you know, your efforts on behalf of this, you know, with your research and also your support of the microbiota vault, uh, that really, really outstanding. Uh, where can people find out more about uh, what you're doing in addition of course the documentary do, do you have a website uh, or is there a place that well, you can direct people yes well th- th- both the film the invisible extinction has a website the invisible extinction.com and the microbiota vault has a website microbiota vault.com you you can look it up there you, you can find us on the internet very very easily to learn more about it and, you know, I just want to thank you uh, for this interview. As as you can tell, I'm very passionate about the subject. And that's why we worked with the filmmakers, because a film is a great way to get out to the general public to, you know, to show a lot of ideas. And we think these filmmakers did a great job. Well, absolutely. I agree. Th- thank you very much for joining us, uh, Dr. Martin Blazer. And, you know, keep up the great work along with uh, your wife, uh Dr. Dominguez Bello. You certainly made a great contribution. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the... Go ahead, sir. Yeah, no, just thanks thanks very much again. And I guess we'll be talking again in another eight years. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I... Please uh, keep us updated because this is actually a fast-moving field. Uh, There's a lot of great developments, so from time to time, it's important to catch up. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that only offers curated professional-grade brands that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired, always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoffmanStore.com. DearHoffmanStore.com.